Tonight I'm going to be speaking on the, the holiness of God. I begin with the question, what do you think most people would understand to be the central or core attribute of God? You have to describe God in one, in one word. Uh, think about normal, normative Christianity today. Just people that consider themselves Christian. And beyond that, even the non-Christian world, if they were going to describe God in one word, what do you think that would be? Let's say it together. One, two, three. Okay, we had mixed review. Okay, we had love and holy. And uh, you're well trained if you say holy. I really think that uh, most of Christendom would say that God is a God of love. Uh, I remember years ago when I was at the Reading Bible Fellowship Church, I was asked to go see an individual that I was told was very antagonistic to the things of God. And they said, you know, they may throw you out of their, their room in the hospital, but we ought, you ought to go see him. And I said, all right, I will. And I walked in, and this guy was pretty gruff. I introduced myself, and I said, I'm a pastor. And he said, you don't need to say any more. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that God loves me. And I said, no, I wasn't going to say that at all. I don't think he does. And I left. And uh, I remember uh, I went back the next day. And as soon as I walked in the room, he says, what do you mean God doesn't love me? And uh, from there, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And the man actually made a profession of faith. But we live in a day and age in which most people think of God as a God of love. But I would say to you that that is unique to the period of time in which we live. It certainly is not in the mainstream of historic Christianity. And it's not in the mainstream of uh, this word of God, more importantly. If you think about the Puritan era, which I think is the greatest era of theology, and uh, had a tremendous impact upon our country with the Great Awakening. And the sermon that is attributed as being key and instrumental to the great outworking of the Holy Spirit bringing revival to this country in the time of the Great Awakening is a sermon that was delivered by Jonathan Edwards. And I know that you've all heard the name of that sermon. It centers in the hands of an angry God. Not a loving God, but an angry God. A God who hates sin. And that was a bulwark of our understanding of evangelicalism right down to the time of Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody was a famous evangelist. He had a tendency to hold meetings that would last two weeks. And uh, he did that for a particular reason. And that is it was the normative practice of Dwight L. Moody to spend the first ten nights speaking on the Ten Commandments in order that people might see their need of a Savior. And it wouldn't be until the 11th night they would actually present the gospel. People needed to understand that they were lost before they could understand that they were saved. But there came a, a, a person along by the name of Finney. Finney was a rank Arminian. And he arose in a period of modernism in which he thought that people were going to be turned off by hearing about the holiness of and righteousness of God. And so it was Finney who emphasized in his evangelistic crusades 
the love of God. And that has continued right down to the present time in which we live. Probably the most influential track was composed by Bill Bright associated with Campus Crusade. If you've been on a college campus and years gone by, you probably came into contact with the little track known as the Four Spiritual Laws. Have you heard about that track? The Four Spiritual Laws. And if you are familiar with that track, you will know that the first spiritual law is, the first spiritual law is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's how uh, Bill Bright started his message of the gospel. Well, tonight, I say to you that it is a game changer. It really does make a difference in how you understand the person of God and our relationship to Him as to what we think is the core attribute of God. For, notice the second statement. What do you think most people would view as God's primary goal for His people? God wants us to be an Happy, yes, thank you. Happy. That that is what most of this world thinks that God wants for us. He has saved us in order to make us happy. God exists to make us happy. God made this world to make us happy. God answers our prayers to make us happy. That certainly is the concept. But tonight, we're going to see that God's primary purpose in dealing with His people is that He wants us to be Holy. Holy. And there's a world of difference. It is a game changer. So tonight the theme is the core or central attribute of God is holiness. First, the core attribute of God is holiness. How do we know that the holiness is the core attribute of God? I would submit to you three ways. First, which I think is the most significant, is that the descriptive name For the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. That is how universally the third person of the Trinity is introduced to us or described to us. He is not referred to once in the Word of God as the loving Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of holiness. He himself is holy And his primary work in the life of the child of God is to create holiness within us. That is his primary ministry. He reveals truth. He convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But as you look at the totality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he has been given to make us holy. And all of his actions... All of his endeavors are directed towards that one purpose and aim to make us holy. Secondly, the angels proclaim the holiness of God in trifold magnification. Isaiah 6.3 And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4.8 And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. 
Now there he's referred to as the Almighty God. But notice that there is preceding that descriptive title as the Almighty God, that he is holy, holy, holy. It is the only try statement concerning the person of God. Never Almighty, 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 or wise, 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 or good, 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 or loving, loving, loving. It is uniquely holy, holy, holy. God is referred to as the Holy One 50 times in the Bible. I say over 50 times. Uh, Somewhere between 50 and 58. It depends on on, uh, a number of translation issues. So, conservatively, over 50 times. Twice in the Scriptures, it refers to God as being loving. God is a God of love. Over 50 times, He is the Holy One. So put that in perspective on where the emphasis is in the Word of God. So what does that mean in a practical sense? Well, first, it means that God's holiness governs all the other attributes of God. That is the core or essence of His being. So every attribute of God you could put in uh, preface to that attribute the word holy. It would be appropriate. So, for example, number two, God's love is a holy love. God's power is a holy power. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. It would be appropriate to use that description of every attribute of God. Thirdly, There is no antithesis to God's holiness. Okay? For example, God is a God of love. What is the antithetical attribute of God to His being a God of love? Hate. God is also a God of of hate. There are things that God hates. You see? But there is no antithesis to His holiness. God is never, ever, Unholy. And there is no attribute that stands in opposition to his holiness. So now let's look at his holiness. Next, God's supreme or overriding desire for his people is that we should be holy. Number one, this is the goal of God in saving us. He saved us with the express intention. I just use one verse here. I could have quoted verse after verse after verse. All that teaches this same truth. And that is, God's purpose in saving us was to make us holy. Look at Ephesians 1.4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be Holy and without blame before Him. That was the goal. That was the purpose. That we should be holy. He saved us to make us holy. Not happy. Not rich. Holy. And number two, to be holy is the express 
commandment of God. 1 Peter 1.15 But just as He has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. And that then gives us the reason for our necessarily being holy. Why should we live holy lives? Because God is holy. And that is what God demands of us, to be holy. So let's look at the nature of God's holiness. The first thing that we note is that God is essentially and necessarily holy. God is holy by His very nature. Holiness is not an act of God's will, but a manifestation of His being. God did not choose to be holy, for then He could choose to be unholy. Holiness is not an expression of His, of his will. It is an expression of His person. He is in fact, holy. And because God is holy, it necessitates that He acts in certain ways. It governs all of His thoughts. It governs all of His actions. God must always be consistently holy. That is who He is. He is a holy God. And holiness is an attribute that sets God apart from all of the gods. There is no one holy like the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. And if you think about the gods that exist in mankind's reason, you will note that certainly the gods of other religions, whatever they are, they're not holy. They're not holy. They uh, do not demand holiness, and they don't act in a holy manner. Think especially of the Greek gods and uh, how they toy with mankind and how they connive against each other and do evil. Uh, mankind doesn't even conceive of a holy God. Because God is uh, not only essentially and necessarily holy, God is uniquely holy as I just said. And then thirdly, there is nothing in the character or person of God for sin or evil to appeal to. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one who is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The reason that we can be tempted is because we do not inherently hate evil. In fact, the opposite is true. Our hearts are sinful. They are evil. Evil appeals to us. Sinfulness has its way with us. Satan can appeal to our sinfulness. But you see, God can't be tempted because He finds no pleasure in evil. Not only 
is there no evil within him to appeal to? But D, God is intensely holy so that he abhors all evil. He hates evil. Number one, God takes no pleasure in wickedness. For thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness. Evil will not dwell with God, for he does not want it around. Psalm 5, verse 4. For thou art not a God that has pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with you. So, evil will not be in the presence of God because he cannot tolerate it. Tolerate it. Fallen mankind takes pleasure in those who do evil. Romans 1.32 And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Our world gives hearty approval to those who do evil things. They pat them on the back. They encourage them. You think about the elementary school and the goody two-shoes, who themselves, perhaps, would not do anything wrong, but got a kick out of the person in the class that was doing things they shouldn't and wanted to egg them on. We need to admit that we wrestle. Even as redeemed individuals, we wrestle with the fact that, that, that sin is appealing to us. Hebrews 11.25 says, Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's referring to Moses. And it's saying that he chose to suffer affliction with God's people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Moses would have experienced some pleasure in sinning, this verse tells us. But it would be short-lived. And we all know that reality. Why do we sin? Because we want to sin. And why do we want to sin? Because we get pleasure from it. Why do people look at pornographic materials? They get pleasure from it. Why do we do the evil that we do? We get pleasure from it. Why do people like to see people get hurt? What is it about it that, that we want to see people break legs and arms and be in you know, fights at hockey games or uh, be in wrecks at uh, race events? What is it? about it that appeals to us. Why is that entertaining? How is that any different than the Colosseums in the time of Rome and the gladiators in which people were put out there and the crowd just, just loved to see these gladiators go against each other until one person would die or to wrestle a lion or a bear. What is it? It is sinfulness in our hearts that that appeals to, that that titillates us. There is nothing of that in God. God takes no pleasure in iniquity. 
Next, God hates sin necessarily. God is so holy that he cannot but hate sin. His very essence demands it, necessitates it. Again, it's not a choice on the part of God. It's an expression of who God is. That is the primary difference between talking about God's righteousness and God's holiness. Righteousness refers to his actions. God acts righteously. God chooses to do righteous. God chooses to do good. Holiness is not what he he chooses to be. He doesn't choose to be holy. He is holy. And because he is holy, it governs all his choices. So so Habakkuk 1.13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. It can't look on iniquity. So God doesn't have any difficulty like we do in looking at evil. God must hate sin wherever it is found and whenever it manifests itself. So God hates sin intensely. God hates sin intensely. Not only is God not drawn toward or tempted by evil, but he is repulsed by it. He is turned off by it. He shuns it. He turns his back on it. He wants nothing to do with it. It not only fails to appeal to him, but it repulses him. Proverbs 6.16 and following. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates sin universally. Wherever sin is found, no matter who commits it, God hates it. There is no exception. Psalm 5, verse 5. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Nowhere is this more plainly seen than in God's response to his son when he bore our sin. God did not spare his son. Romans 8.32, he spared not his son. God did not spare his own son. And God did not spare his beloved son. Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved son. Why did God pour out his wrath on his own son? The son that he expressly stated that he loved. Why would God do that? Because he bore our iniquity. And when he took upon himself our sin, he had to hate that. Even when it was his own son. His own beloved son. 
that was being seen as sinful. It required, it necessitated the wrath of God being expressed. And he poured out his wrath on his son because of his inerrant, uh, inherent hatred of evil. Next, God hates sin perpetually. God judges the righteous. And God is angry with the wicked every day. God is not ever placated in the sense that God never will tolerate evil or sin. God does not become indifferent to or tolerant of sin after a period of time. Again, that's how God is so different from us. We are like a frog in a kettle. Where uh, if you heat that water, eventually that frog is going to boil to death because he just adjusts to that heated water. We adjust to the sin that's around us. We learn to tolerate sin. We learn to tolerate sin in others. And we learn to tolerate sin in ourselves. We get to the place where we don't think it's so bad. And we don't think we're so bad. And we don't think our world is so bad in which we live. We have a tendency to excuse and to forgive evil in others and evil in ourselves. But that is not true of God. B, God hates sin today as much as He did yesterday and will hate it just as much tomorrow. That is why the fires of hell never go out. Because God never ceases to hate it. There will never be a day in which God says, all right, it's enough. I'll tolerate it. He never will. He never will. His person can't do it. God is consistently holy so that he delights in the goodness that is manifest in others. Psalm 11, verse 7. For the righteous Lord loves righteousness. The righteous Lord loves righteousness. Why did... Let me put it this way. When... Did, Jesus, did God say, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased? Remember? It was at his baptism. And Jesus came up out of the water. And God said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Why was Jesus so beloved? Of the Father. Because he lived righteously. He lived holy. He lived justly. And God loved him. Immensely. 
One of the verses in the Bible that we often don't look at, but it commands us in the Scriptures to keep ourselves in the love of God. Seems odd. Keep ourselves in the love of God. Why does it say that? Because God loves us the most when we are walking with Him. It is when He is the proudest of us. It is when He delights in us. So that, number two, God desires to protect and reward the righteous. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Second Chronicles 16.9 For the eyes of the Lord are run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards Him. Three, God finds our worship of Him in holiness as a beautiful thing. Without holiness, our worship of God is unacceptable. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, I'm tired of your new moons, your feast days, your Sabbath days. I abhor them. Bring your sacrifices no more. God is angered by the worship of God, which consists of outward praise, but the heart does not manifest that praise. It actually displeases God. God is angered by false worship. There are many people today that worshipped in church, quote-unquote. They went to church, but did not have a saving relationship with God. And all they did today was anger Him. He didn't reward them. He didn't bless them. And He didn't look favorably upon it. He was angered. How dare you! How dare you call on me? How dare you give lip service to my word? He doesn't tolerate it. He's a holy God. Conclusion. God delights in His holiness. In turn, He delights to make us holy. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we should be holy and blameless. He loves us. He manifested that love in dying for us. To present us to Himself. To make us acceptable to Him by being holy. So in the brief time I have, what's the practical application? First, what attribute in ourselves do we delight in the most? Honestly, as you think about yourself, what are you most happy about? What is it you are most pleased with? What is the, the thing you want most? Do you take pride in how you look? 
and that's the most important thing? I'm beautiful. Or my life stinks because I'm not beautiful. I'm not handsome. Is it your strength? Do you pride yourself in your athletic ability? Is it one's talents? We can sing. We can dance. We're funny. What is it that brings the greatest joy to our hearts as we aspire to? What do you want to be? What would you like to be able to do? I submit to you that what we should desire the most is to be holy. To be holy. Let me ask you a second question, closely related. What do you want most from your children? When do your children make you the happiest? When are you the proudest of them? When is it that you want to brag? When is it that you, you, you just want to embrace them and say, Honey, I'm, I'm so proud of you. When they're an honor student? When they hit the game-winning home run? When they get to lead the musical? When they do a great work? No, and we go on and on with all the illustrations. You know them. Or is it, as in the Word of God says, I have no greater joy than here that my children walk with the Lord. What do we desire for our children? And it's easy to kid ourselves. What do we invest in our children the most? Where do we take them? Where do we run them? What do we provide for them? What are we encouraging to do? What are we supporting them in? What are we encouraging to invest their lives in? When we start sitting down and talking to them about what do you want to be when you grow up? What are we encouraging them to be? And they are not so much looking for an occupation as a way of life. To be holy. To be holy. That should be the goal. That should be the aspiration. And then lastly, what is it that we find to be attractive in others? Young people, what is it in the opposite, opposite sex that really attracts you? Who are you drawn to? Who do you like? When you think of a, a future husband or a future wife, what must that person be like? How beautiful do they have to be? How talented do they have to be? How smart do they have to be? How holy must they be? What attracts us? 
God is holy. He delights in holiness. And holiness thrills his heart. And he says to us, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we confess anew and ask for forgiveness for all the times that we quench and grieve your Spirit. And how often it is that so many things appeal to us that certainly cannot be described as holy. And how often it is that we delight in things that can't be described as holy. And we want for our children even what can't be described as holy. And we have thoughts about the opposite sex and what we want from one another that can't be described as holy. Lord, help us. Help us to be holy. And give us that desire to be holy. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.